Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and welcome to Just Something About Her from The Recount and iHeartRadio. On this podcast, I talk to powerful women about how they made it to the top on their own terms. Here to help me introduce this week's guest is my producer, Sari Soffer. Hi, Sari. Hello. This is a big one. This is a big one. Yes. Julia Gillard is on the show. She was the first and only woman prime minister of Australia and someone who I feel safe to say has endured more misogyny and aggression from men than most women I've ever heard of. Yeah. Very fair assessment on your part. Yeah, I hate to give them more airtime, but just to show the scope, she was called Julier, an old cow, a witch, deliberately barren and just constantly criticized for not having children. Some of that was from women. It just really shocked me how explicit and unapologetic the criticism of her was. The only comparison I can really think of is how people treat Governor Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, who we actually had on the show in the fall. There are definitely cultural influences at play here, but it seems as if all of these issues are coming to a head right now in Australia. It has been reckoning with its own Me Too movement the last couple of months. And I do want to start off with a trigger warning for our Mm -hmm. listeners because we will be discussing an allegation of sexual assault that led to this recent wave of protests. Yeah, there was that first accusation that you just mentioned by a woman named Brittany Higgins. And then things sort of exploded from there, like more women backed her claim that this man had also assaulted them. Then a few weeks later, Australia's attorney general was accused of sexually assaulting a woman when they were teenagers. Footage of a senior government staffer masturbating on the desk of a female lawyer was leaked. I mean, just some really terrible stories coming out of the dark. But even as the examples from Australia are really egregious, they have done something that America has not done, which is have a woman held the highest office. And, you know, when we first started this podcast, Sari, that was sort of a a big question we had was, why? (laughs) Why has this happened in other countries and not in America? Yeah, actually, um, all states and territories in Australia, except for one, have had a female head of government, whereas in America, there are still 20 states that have never had a female governor. Yeah, and it's hard to compare apples to oranges because there are many differences in our systems and our electorates. But I'm curious about, you know, her thoughts, her takeaways on this question. Why Australia? Why not here? Me too. And I noticed we're calling her in London today. Uh, yes, since 2018, Julie was appointed inaugural chair of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College in London. Mm-hmm. And she's written a few books, most recently with the first female finance uh, minister of Nigeria, about women globally that have held top positions. Sounds like a perfect person to talk to all of this about. <laughs> yes, she is. Let's get to it. Prime Minister Julia Gillard, welcome to Just Something About Her. Thank you. I am delighted to be with you. So let's talk about what's going on in Australia right now. You all are having sort of a late, if I dare say, Me Too movement. It started in mid-February when a woman named Brittany Higgins spoke up about how a colleague had raped her in the office of the defense minister in 2019. And for so long, it felt like the people around me only cared because of where it happened and what it might mean for them. And then there seemed to be sort of a cascade of other um, accusations. And it's triggered this response in Australia. I know you're in London, but tell us about them. I think what has happened is Brittany's courage, and she is a remarkable young woman to come forward and to tell very clearly, very movingly, 
how she went to Parliament House as a bright-eyed young ministerial staffer. There's a wonderful photo of her as a young woman outside Parliament House on her very first day of employment, and you can tell she's just bursting with delight to get the opportunity to work with a Conservative government, to work with the Minister for Defence, and then for this story to go so shockingly wrong when she is preyed upon by another staff member. And then when she complains about that, to not be treated with the seriousness and respect that one would want and demand for all women. I wasn't a person who'd just gone through a life-changing traumatic event. I was a political problem. You know, it's that wonderful suffragette saying, courage calls to courage everywhere. Her courage, I think, then sparked a number of women coming forward from all sides of politics. So this is when it moved from being a story about the government to being about politics and public life in Australia generally, when women from all sides of politics came forward and told their own personal stories. And women in large numbers gathered on the streets of Australia. There were demonstrations in more than 40 towns, 150,000 women taking to the streets on the same day, basically saying we have to change this. Is this the first time, in, at least in you know, the last few years, that this has erupted in Australia or is this a second wave? I think we've had smaller waves, but this is the tsunami. This is the time that it's moved from being some stories, and there were stories about our media, our entertainment industry, but this is the first time it's come in such numbers over so many weeks, and it has so transfixed the nation. So in that sense, it is the explosion of consciousness of sexual harassment, sexual violence, and the way that women can be treated at work and beyond in Australia. You know, with some of the accusations that women have made in Australia about politicians' assaults on them, it's pretty shocking. And likewise, when you were prime minister, some of the things that were said about you, which we don't have to enumerate here, but we will play for folks so they have a, a sense of what it was, put her in the same chaff bag as Julia Gillard and throw them both out to sea. Julia is Bob Brown's female dog. <laughs> I don't want to put these things on a scale, but I think it's a little raw, a little worse than what I would hear in America. What do you think that it still is in the culture where men will behave the way that women have said they've suffered and that the kinds of things that were said about you? Every nation's story has its own complexities, and ours certainly does. I mean, if we broaden the lens a little bit, you know, every year the World Economic Forum puts out rankings of gender equality, who's doing well as a nation, who's doing badly as a nation in gender equality. When the most recent rankings came out, New Zealand was in the top 10, and people who think about New Zealand and Australia Often from internationally, people would look and think, oh, well, they're similar kinds of countries. Uh, but New Zealand was in the top 10 and Australia was languishing far behind that. So we need to do better. And the domains in which we underperform economic equality and political equality. So we've got more to do to better include women, to 
lift labour force participation rates to close gender pay gaps. And clearly, we've got more to do so women feel treated uh, respectfully and without harassment and violence at work. And we've got more to do in political voice for women. That is a bit different on each side of politics. As long ago as the early 1990s, the Labor Party adopted an affirmative action rule. And as a result, the political teams of Labor in our national parliament and our state parliaments tend to be around about half-half, maybe 55-45, but around about half-half. What did the rule require? Did it require that for every male candidate there was a female candidate or how did it work? The way it worked, I was uh, one of the campaigners for this uh, when I was a young activist and helped with some of the analytical work for the rule. So in our Westminster system, To be the government and to be the party the Prime Minister is a member of, you need to win the majority of seats in the House of Representatives. And so to make the maths easy, it's a little bit more complicated than that. But when we were writing the rule and for most of it, there's been around 150 seats in the House of Representatives. And so to be the government, you basically got to win half plus one. So call Mm -hmm. that 76 The rule said of those seats on the political pendulum that you know you need to win to form the government, a percentage of them have to have female candidates. And over time, that percentage increased. And that's what's led us to the around about half-half now. And then we also have a Senate and there was a similar formula that worked for the Senate. On the other side of politics, they decided not to go for an affirmative action rule. You don't say. (laughs) Yeah, I don't say. They decided to go for mentoring and training arrangements Mm. and the like. So it's not that they didn't do anything. How has that worked out? How has that manifested itself? (laughs) (laughs) It's not like they didn't try anything. But, you know, they've inched their way forward to roughly around a quarter of representatives on the conservative side of politics are women. So they haven't made the big dramatic jump. And this is coming off a comparable base. I mean, the early 1990s when Labor started on this progress and you got the affirmative action rule, right back then in the federal parliament, basically the political parties were neck in neck in terms of the number of women. My memory is Labor was at 14% and the Conservatives were at 13%. So basically, even Stevens. And, you know, off that low base, Labor's built up to where it is today, almost half. And clearly, and one of the things that has come out of the debate that was started by Brittany and her truth telling is what does the Conservative Party now need to do and do they need to move to an affirmative action rule to make a dramatic difference to the number of women in politics. And what was your own journey into politics like? I didn't grow up wanting to be in politics. I would have thought it was ridiculous if someone had suggested uh, that I go into politics when I was young because I came from a very ordinary Aussie family. We were migrants from the UK and, you know, people like us didn't go into politics. I got a taste, though, for public policy and public advocacy at university, protesting against education funding cuts. I got more and more active in the Labor Party and decided, you know, ultimately, yes, I would like to be a parliamentarian. I'd like to be in politics. I've lost count now, but I think I went for pre-selection by the Labor Party three or four times and they said no. And I had to go back again and then they said no. <laughs> so, and then I, they finally said, yes, you can run for the Labor Party. And I ran for a Senate spot 
and we were having a difficult election and I didn't get elected. And then I finally ran in 1998 for this very good constituency called Lawler, which routinely returns progressive people to the Australian Parliament and thankfully voted for me. And for the rest of my political career, I was the member for Lawler. So it took some determination to get there. So you had to go before them a number of times after having been rejected and say, no, really, I'm the best person to do this. That's right. And it was painful to live through. I almost used a swear word then. (laughs) We'd have to bleep the podcast. Uh, It was hideously painful to live through those rounds of rejection. Uh, But ultimately, it meant by the time I got into the parliament, I was crystal clear. I wanted to be there. I knew what I'd come to do. You know, I hadn't fought that hard for a decade to sit on the parliamentary benches, you know, twiddling my thumbs. I was going to get in right amongst it and make a difference. And it had toughened me up in contemplation. And a lot of people only go through that toughening up once they're in parliament. Whereas I got this experience kind of off-Broadway. So before I was in the absolute full glare of public estimation and opinion with all the hurly-burly that comes with that, I had to, you know, find these reservoirs of resilience. And so that worked for me in the long term. And then what about the final rise to the prime ministership? How did that happen? Well, it happened all in a rush. One of the things that our parliamentary system has, which doesn't have an equivalent in your system, is because you are the prime minister as the leader of your political party. If your political party changes leadership, then that changes who is the prime minister. And in a rush, my political party decided to do that. So I became prime minister quickly and in difficult circumstances. I needed to go out and fight an election almost immediately. And I knew when I became Prime Minister that obviously it would be incredibly notable that I was the first woman to do the job. You know, no one was going to be missing that uh, and no (laughs) one did. But I made the assumption that all of that would be at its most ferocious but also its most helpful in the early days of my Prime Ministership. And by that I mean the sort of go-girl reaction would be at its highest and also any potential anti-reaction But what I actually found was the longer I governed, the more gender came to the fore. So, you know, gender stereotypes are there the whole time. But when women are under pressure, it's when the gendered insult becomes just everywhere. You know, the go-to weapon, everybody's using it. And with a nasty undercurrent of, we kind of knew, we kind of knew she wasn't up to it, you know, which is really code for, We kind of knew a woman couldn't do it, but people don't want to be caught saying women can't do it. So once again, we're back in that default of it's something about her. She's just not up to it. She's, you know, too young, too dumb, too flighty, too this, too that, whatever the analysis is. First of all, it sounds like you took over in what you describe in your book as a glass cliff situation. Is that fair to say? Uh, Yes, I think it is. And I've become more and more intrigued by the glass cliff over time. I think glass cliffs are everywhere for women. They are everywhere. (laughs) Can you explain the glass cliff syndrome? The glass cliff is 
thing that was discovered actually by uh, a team of researchers, uh, one of which was Michelle Ryan, who is happily coming on to be director of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership in Australia, so the sister institute to the one I chair here in London. And she and the researchers had seen a story in the Times in London, which literally said, women CEOs in businesses lead to low share prices. You know, if you have a woman, your share price is lower. And when the researchers unpacked that, what they actually found was it was the other way around. Falling share prices predicted the appointment of a female CEO. So if everything was going swimmingly for a company and they needed a new CEO, they'd get one a lot like the old CEO, so probably a white man. It was when things were going badly that then they all said to each other, we've got to shake something up here. We've got to do something really different. What are we going to do? I know, we'll get our first woman. And, you know, women would therefore be at this glass cliff. And if they succeeded, fantastic. But given the odds were stacked against them, they may well fail, in which case people were going to falsely say that was about getting a woman rather than the circumstances she was put into. We tried that. It didn't work out. Can't do that again. Right. Like that is partly what happened to the women that ran in 2020. You know, I think they felt like because Hillary didn't win, it was like, well, we tried that. You know, it didn't work. We can't do that again. Yes, that's right. All right. It's time to take a quick break. But after the break, I want to play your famous misogyny speech because it's so badass. But also, I want to hear how your own relationship to that speech, how you look at it, has evolved over the past decade. That's after the break on Just Something About Her with former Australian Prime Minister Julia Gillard. And we're back to Just Something About Her with Julia Gillard, the former Prime Minister of Australia. I'm going to make you talk about the misogyny speech. (laughs) Because it's so amazing. So for our listeners who don't know, although I know that you told me people stop you in the streets in different parts of the world to say how much that meant to them. But if I'm describing the situation right, this is not a prepared speech, but there's a moment in Parliament, as this is a couple of years into your prime ministership, where it just sort of boils over and you give this amazing, off the top of your head, I believe, rebuttal to a male leader of another party that describes, you you know, sort of what you've been through, what women go through. And then, of course... I was offended too by the sexism, by the misogyny of the Leader of the Opposition cat calling across this table at me as I sit here as Prime Minister. If the Prime Minister wants to, politically speaking, make an honest woman of herself, something that would never have been said to any man sitting in this chair. I was offended when the Leader of the Opposition went outside in the front of Parliament and stood next to a sign that said, Ditch the Witch. I was offended when the Leader of the Opposition stood next to a sign that described me as a man's bitch. I was offended by those things. Can you tell us what that tipping point was and what you wanted to convey? Yeah, that tipping point came, you know, in... 2012. So I'd been in the Prime Minister's chair for a while. And because I'd made this error, as it turned out, thinking that 
the reactions to me being the first woman would be mostly experienced in the early days of my prime ministership and then it would kind of give way and it would be politics as normal. I'd taken the decision because I believed that, that there wasn't much point me spending political time, which is precious, pointing out gendered treatment. I thought, look, this will work itself out and it'll go away and I'd rather be out talking to the Australian community about our vision to combat climate change or to, you know, strengthen our economy. You don't want to be the woman prime minister. You just want to be prime minister. Just want to be prime minister and there was a lot to do. And then, you know, because I hadn't called it out early, as it grew and grew, the longer I was in office, the harder it became to call it out. Because if you ever mentioned it, then the reaction was, well, she's only saying that because she's in a bit of political trouble because people don't like this or the other thing. Yeah, she's playing the sexist card. That's what yes. we were saying in these sets. In the States. Yes, yeah. starting a gender war, all of that. And then there was this moment where I had supported a man to be Speaker of the House of Representatives who had been subsequently shown to have authored very sexist text messages. Now, I couldn't have known that at the time that I supported him, but never let the truth get in the way of a parliamentary tactic. And I went into Parliament this day uh, expecting to be questioned about sexism, but the opposition instead decided not to have question time but to move a motion for immediate debate. So the speech that's come to be known as the misogyny speech was my speech in reply. So I hadn't been expecting to give a speech, so I jotted down handwritten notes whilst the leader of the opposition was speaking and gave it off those handwritten notes. And it was certainly propelled by this frustration that it had got as bad as it had on the question of gender and for so long I had been unable to address it in an effective way. The leader of the opposition says do something. Well, he could do something himself if he wants to deal with sexism in this parliament. He could change his behaviour. He could apologise for all these past statements. He could apologise for standing next to signs describing me as a witch and a bitch, terminology that he's now objected to by the front bench of the opposition. He could change a standard himself if he sought to do so. But we will see none of that from the Leader of the Opposition because on these questions he is incapable of change. This Parliament today should reject this motion and the Leader of the Opposition should think seriously about the role of women in public life and in Australian society because we are entitled to a better standard than this. When I finished giving the speech, I had to kind of sit there for the rest of the debate. And so I spun round after giving the speech and spoke to Wayne Swan, who was my deputy prime minister, so the vice president equivalent, and said, oh, you know, I'm going to get trapped sitting here now and it's a big waste of time. I'm going to get my office to run in some correspondence. I can work my way through my correspondence basket while I'm sitting here. (laughs) Wayne had this really unusual look on his face and he was like, you can't give the, you know, I accuse kind of speech and then settle down and do your correspondence like you can't do that. And I sort of spun my chair back around and thought, that's really odd. But it gave me a sense of how much power people on my own side thought was in the speech. I saw President Obama have what I think is sort of a similar moment. This is involving the Trayvon Martin shooting. So this was, you know, 
young black teenager. He's like killed by a vigilante in Florida. And it was really the start of the sort of Black Lives Matter movement. When the man who shot him, George Zimmerman, was acquitted, it was just like just wrenching for black Americans. And we weren't sure what the president should say about it because it's like a court case, you know, settled. It's not his business. And finally, you know, I asked him, I said, do you think you need to speak to the black American community? And he said, no, I think I need to speak for them. And we're like, what would you want to say? And he sat down and kind of laid out what it had been like to be a black man in America. Right. And after he finished, he said, well, what do you, what do you think I should do? And we said, you should go in the briefing room and say what you just said. And the next day, he basically did that. When uh, Trayvon Martin was first shot, uh, I said that this could have been my son. Uh, another way of saying that is uh, Trayvon Martin could have been me 35 years ago. You know, most days I think of him as the president of the United States, not the first black president. I don't think he wanted to be the first black president. He wanted to be president. You didn't want to be the first woman prime minister. You wanted to be prime minister. You wanted to do your job. But then, like, history calls upon both of you for these particular moments to mark it for us. For you, is there any sort of resentment that you had that you had to do this or that you remembered for it? Or how did you feel in the moment? How do you look at it now? Yeah, I've I've had mixed feelings about it over the years. I didn't resent it in the moment. You know, I had that speech inside me. I had this sense of frustration inside me and I was glad to deliver it. Then, you know, I left Australian politics, went on to do other things and, you know, whether it was in interviews or people talking to me, they would talk to me about that speech. And there was a bit of me that thought I was in politics for, you know, more than like a decade and a half. I was uh, deputy prime minister for three years. I was prime minister for three years. We did some big things and apparently it all comes down to this one short speech. <laughs> and I did feel a little resentful about that, but I'm kind of at peace with it now because my years post-politics, I've reflected back on all of my experiences and I haven't wanted to live in that past, but I've wanted to take what I learned from that with me and to share it. And that's what's led me to the Global Institute for Women's Leadership and many of the things that I do now. So it's enabled me really to see that speech more in the frame of how it spoke in a cultural moment and consequently its importance. So yeah, more at peace with it now. And I mean, this is going to sound like I'm trying to say a depressing thing. I'm not. I actually think it's a very liberating thing. Um, John Key, who was my counterpart in New Zealand when I was Prime Minister, he was Prime Minister of New Zealand. He's a conservative, but we you know, became good friends and we've stayed in contact since. And we were talking one day and he said to me, you know what, Julia? The first line of our obituary is already written. We don't have to worry about that anymore. We can, you know, do whatever we like because job done. Like, you know, the, the writers in the newspapers, they've already got the first line. Right. But there is a liberation in saying, I don't have to worry about any of that anymore. It stands on its own terms. And if in the eyes of women and men, the misogyny speech stands for something they still find meaningful, then of course, I'm happy about that. You know, the the other thing that really resonated with me, because you wrote about this in your book, too, is that how you, you thought it was going to be that the novelty of the first woman prime minister would wear off, but that what happened was it got worse and kind of compounded as you went on, which was my experience with Hillary in her campaign, 
was that I thought actually if she had gotten elected, it would have dissipated. But I guess I was probably mistaken <laughs> about that. But talking about how did that manifest itself once you were prime minister? I mean, it was sort of all of those things. We emerged, uh, my political party, from the 2010 campaign in government, but we needed to rely on the votes of some members of parliament who were not in our political party, who were either in a small political party, the Greens, or who were independents, so a minority government. And this was completely functional. In fact, that period of government was the most productive in Australia's history in terms of getting legislation through. But even though it was working, it enabled both the opposition and the media to create this atmosphere of crisis of, you know, the government's not secure, it's a minority government, it could fall any day. And then they sort of wove, both of them, the opposition and conservative sections of the media, wove a narrative around me which is she's only got her political interests at heart, not your interests. You know, she's only working to keep the government in power. She's not working in your interests. And all of that was overlaid with imagery about ruthlessness. You know, she got to the top by getting rid of a male prime minister. She doesn't get family life because she doesn't have children of her own. So she's a person very different from you, a kind of, you know, Lady Macbeth style figure. And that terminology was used a lot. Lady Macbeth style figure, ruthless, unkind, would do anything in her own interests, even if it meant treating others badly. And given they're the antithesis of the kind of things that people stereotypically say they expect from women, they expect women to be empathetic, kind, to put the interests of others first, to be maternal, to be nurturing. This was a very damaging critique. It's hard to do that when you're leading. When you're leading the country, you're saying, I am the person best positioned to do this. And those are sort of still hard emotions and signs for us to be receiving from women leaders. Yes, and the global research is just so clear about this, that people dislike women owning ambition. And we point in the book to a psychological test done at Yale University, so in the US, where they get two groups of voters in different rooms. They get a man to go into one room. He's pretending to be a political candidate doing a pitch. You should vote for me because a woman goes into the other room to do a pitch the wording of the pitch is exactly the same and it contains some, you know, lines about ambition like I'm the kind of person who gets things done. I might have to step on someone's toes to deliver the job, but I always do. And coming from a man, people are like, yeah, he's a go-getter and, they, <laughs> yeah, they do get them to do little dummy votes. I'm going to vote for him. He'd get the job done. Coming from a woman, people were like, whoa, no, we are not going to support her because that ambition was seen as, you know, offending against the stereotypes they had of women and being so offensive that the researchers ended up using words like contempt and disgust to try and capture how strong the audience's reaction was. And I think in some ways we may well be seeing this play out in real time around Vice President Harris, mm -hmm. which is 
I suspect, ever since America was uh, America and uh, was electing presidents and vice presidents. Every vice president has uh, dreamed in their bed at night of being president. I don't think too many would have not had that dream. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, of course they do. Whereas that is now being woven around her a bit as too much ambition, too clearly ambitious, too obviously thinking through, you know, what will happen next and who will be the next president, as though that's illegitimate. As though that was not Joe Biden's experience. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And as a result, we learn to hide that ambition. And I'm not saying they don't believe it. I think, you know, because we are all conditioned and we're all shaped by the environment that we move in. I think women who have never looked at any of this research intuitively know that ambition comes across differently for women. And so when asked, you know, why do you want to run for parliament? It's because I've always wanted to make a difference for, you know, my community, you know, children's education, you know. In service to others. That's what we were told, the pollsters told us that Hillary had to say. She wanted to be in service to others. Yes. Yeah. You can never say because I'd be good at it or Or I'm I'm, the best person for the job or I've spent a lifetime getting ready for it or whatever might be the the truth. But I do want to mark progress when it happens, because even though that was said about Kamala Harris, Joe Biden picked her. Yes. When we're back, I want to ask you about your theories on why America still hasn't been able to elect a woman leader. That's coming up on Just Something About Her with Australia's former Prime Minister, Julia Gillard. Welcome back to Just Something About Her with Julia Gillard. When this podcast started, one of my male colleagues at Recount, Christian Castro-Russell, he said, you know, my big question is why has this not happened in America? Why have we not elected a woman Hillary has a theory, Hillary Clinton has a theory that why the United States in particular has lagged is because she thinks that a parliamentary system might be easier for a woman uh, to be elected because you're selected by your colleagues to lead the party, not at the American system where in the presidential primary system, you as an individual go before the entire country basically in a primary system. And that is more difficult. I think there is merit in Hillary's view. I really do. I think a parliamentary system means leadership, of course, depends on your electoral saleability. I mean, political parties want to be in power, you want to form the government, you want to make change. And so political parties are always going to look and see how a potential leader would resonate with the electorate. But there's also that closer knowledge of you. They know you as colleagues. And I think that that helps. I also think the fact that money is just such a huge part of American politics. I mean, to sustain a presidential campaign is just, you would know this more than me, but an epic fundraising effort. In Australia, our elections are partly publicly funded and the dimension of fundraising from corporates and individuals is therefore so much smaller. I did these statistics some years ago, but just to give you an order of magnitude, when I ran the 2010 campaign as Prime Minister, so in the US system, electing the equivalent of President, the Senate and the House of Representatives, on top of the public funding, we spent 20 million Australian dollars on that campaign. So 
order of magnitude wise, it's just unbelievably different from what you go through. And I think another thing, this is not common, but I do think it makes a difference, is what percentage of people vote. And in Australia, we Mm -hmm. have compulsory voting. You have to be enrolled to vote. Um, You can go to the ballot place and get your ballot paper and put it in blank or write a rude word on it. And some people do do that. (laughs) But overwhelmingly, it means Australians vote. And so the impact of motivated minorities, including those that might campaign against women, even if they say they're not campaigning against women, we know how this uh, goes. They say, oh, we'd love to see a woman as president, just not this woman. Just not Uh, this woman. That's why the podcast is called Just Something About Her, because it's the intangible things that people can't name, you know, because their minds just don't compute when they see a woman leading. There's just something about her. That I cannot name and she cannot fix because I cannot name it. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So I think there's all of those factors at play. Um, The New York Times did an article about how American teenage girls' views about women in leadership have changed in the last four years, and not all of their conclusions are great. Like, let me read you what one young woman said. "Um, Before Donald Trump won, I had in my head being a woman doesn't really matter. I think it's really damaging. All of those women have shown me you can rise above that stuff, and you can be in those positions and succeed. But I think for a lot of little girls and people like me, they see that and think, if that's what it takes to achieve that position, I don't think it's worth it. Which is like the wrong conclusion. <laughs> you know? This is not the conclusion I want. Yeah, it really concerns me when you get feedback like that from young women. And I got a lot in Australia too. There was an opinion poll after I finished being prime minister, opinion polling amongst an activist class of women. So exactly the sort of young women who would be the people who think to themselves, I should go into politics. And they were saying that my experiences had made them less likely to want to go into politics. And so I've always worried about that. And I wouldn't want to insult anybody's intelligence by saying, don't worry about it. It's fine. You know, there's no gendered bits. There still clearly are gendered bits, but it is still worth it. One, because if you get to a position of leadership, whether it's in politics or another walk in of life, you have the ability to make change. You have power in your hands and that matters and using it well matters and using it in a way that changes things for women and gender equality matters. And so, you know, the privilege that comes with being able to put your values into action and to make changes that will make it easier for the generations to come, you know, that is a very precious thing and worth having, even if some gendered baggage, crap, nonsense still comes with it. A friend of mine in Australian politics, Tanya Plebisek, who's still there in Australian politics, she's a very senior Labor politician, is known for the phrase, if it was a hundred times worse, I would still do it because of the opportunities that it gives you. But for young women, what we should be saying is we're using all of our efforts to try and make it a hundred times better by the time you get there. And in part, what we're doing today, sharing these stories, the book, it's about forewarning and forearming those young women so they don't make the same mistakes we made, they don't go into it naively, they go into it ready 
And whilst they're getting ready, we can be working hard for change. And also for them to understand that this is not static. You know, things are constantly evolving. And one of the things that's evolving is what's needed from our leaders and what's expected of a leader. And I know that you've talked about how you think the pandemic has changed what's expected of a leader. Tell us about that. Yeah, I do think that the pandemic has caused us to reflect. I mean, there's been all of those wonderful memes and things circulating about how women leaders are doing better in the pandemic. And, you know, the statistician in me was kind of, hmm, too small a sample size. And then the (laughs) statistician in me was saying, well, isn't that telling us a story in and of its own right that the number of women leaders today is too small a sample size? (laughs) Um, (laughs) But it has caused us, I think, to reflect on what do we really want from leaders? And I think uh, many of those memes and discussions about female leadership at this time have been taking us in the direction of saying what we really, really wanted is we've wanted people who we know are strong enough to get us through a crisis. We know are smart enough to listen to the experts and to work out the best thing to do, but who are empathetic enough to know we're really scared. We're scared about our own health, about our family, about the economy, about what's changing in the world, whether things are ever going to be the same. Um, It's scary and we want leaders who are empathetic and get that. And at the same time, we've seen that ultra macho, swaggering, bravado style of leadership falter and nations led by people like that have far worse pandemics than they needed to. What we've got to guard against is saying, I'll vote for a man or support a man if he's strong and intelligent, but I'll only support a woman if she's strong, intelligent and empathetic. We want empathy. We should make it a requirement for all leaders. So much here for people to learn from. And this is a conversation only you can have. I'm really grateful. Thank you. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. That was a great conversation. Hey, Sari, are you there? I'm here. I'm still thinking about that quota thing that she talked about (laughs) at the top. I think that is just such a fascinating part of how you get women minorities into office, which is like, make it part of the system. It went from representation in the teens to representation that's 50-50. I mean, just because they mandated that women be candidates, not even that women have to hold that position. It's just giving women the opportunity. Right. And that's like how you build a pipeline, right, of talent. Right. It was also interesting um, when she was reflecting on that system, how the party does choose its candidates, that she was like, it's your coworkers that know you, which makes them more likely to choose women who they know are great coworkers, who they know are great leaders within the party. And it's not putting someone up against an electorate that doesn't know all facets of a human, you know? You know, that's sort of like the crux of like why Hillary right. Clinton thinks that the parliamentary system works better. Because like, take Hillary, for example, and you, let's use the United States Congress. Yeah. If the Democrats in Congress were the ones that picked the Democratic nominee She was very popular with her colleagues. She was even popular with her Republican colleagues. They know you as a person. And so the sort of gender bias traps that we all fall into are less likely to happen. And then they are presenting you to the country as their candidate. And what Mm -hmm. I had not really appreciated until this conversation with Julia was she became prime minister in the middle of a labor term. So labor had the prime ministership. There was a change in the party leadership. She became prime minister Mm -hmm. and then she ran. 
as the prime minister, basically for re-election. So right. the initial choice to have a female prime minister happened within the Labour Party. But then she's presented to the voters as the sitting prime minister, and they've seen her do it. It's kind and of like... Seen, yeah, the mold of a woman in that position already. This is not a great analogy, but I think the closest thing we have to that is Kamala Harris being selected by Joe Biden to be vice president. I see what you're saying, where it's like he put her in that position. It was his choice. And also, you know, like vouch for her. And yeah. um, in that's like sort of frustrating that you might need that still. Mm-hmm. But you got to get these first out of the way. Yeah. And I was thinking about, you know, she was talking about the glass cliff. And yeah. that's how she came to power is because there was like, you know, a tumult in her party. And so she became the leader and then was the elected after that. But I actually I thought of the glass cliff phenomenon as being super relevant right now in the pandemic, which we sort of touched on. But it's not always a bad thing, right? Like the woman is put into power during a moment of crisis. Then again, we see like Julia, what a woman looks like in that leadership position and it becomes more normalized. And I wonder if maybe after this pandemic being like the crisis we're dealing with right now, if more women will see leadership roles and this could be a possible turning point for women. It could be. And it could also be, you know, that as she was describing at the end about how pandemics can be good to change the way we think about leaders, I think that's the kind of change that has to happen, right, is expanding the qualities that we think of when we think of what a leader should be. And reframing traditionally considered feminine qualities to be ones that are leadership qualities, like to think that empathy should be on our top five list of qualities that leaders have. Right. Great interview. And also an interview you can't have with anyone else. An interview you can't have with Very few people have reached that place. (laughs) Also, she's just so fun. She seems like she'd be really fun to sit down and have a beer with. Yes, she does. Yes, she does. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thank you to Julia Gillard for being on the show. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Kristen Castro-Russell is our executive producer. <laughs>